Welcome to the Collective Impact Forum podcast, here to share resources to support social change makers working on cross-sector collaboration. The Collective Impact Forum is a nonprofit field building initiative and online community that is co-hosted in partnership by the nonprofit consulting firm FSG and the Aspen Institute Forum for Community Solutions. In this episode, we're doing a deep dive discussion around the topic of long-term sustainability, including what factors are helpful to support your initiative's sustainability over the years it may take to reach your goals. One thing we want to note ahead of time is that in the beginning of this episode, we reference our colleagues at the Tamarack Institute, whose work on sustainability we're discussing today. Along with a shout out to our colleagues at Tamarack, we also want to give a shout out to the authors Dr. Lydia Merrick and Dr. Jay Mancini at the Department of Human Development at the Virginia Polytechnic Institute and the State University at Blacksburg. Dr. Merrick and Dr. Mancini authored the work Sustaining Community-Based Programs, Relationships Between Sustainability Factors and Program Results, which provides some of the foundational points discussed today. Our colleagues at Tamarack cited this paper in their work, but we missed citing it when we recorded our discussion, so we want to make sure we include it here. For those interested in reading more, we have posted links to this paper and to the Tamarack Institute's work on sustainability in the footnotes for this episode, so please check that out if it's helpful. And now, on to the deep dive. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining today's discussion for the Collective Impact Forum podcast. First, let me introduce some folks from the Collective Impact Forum team who are joining us today. First, we have Executive Director of the Collective Impact Forum, Jennifer Splansky-Juster. Thanks for being here, Jen. Thanks for hosting us, Tracy. And next, we have Director of Programs at the Collective Impact Forum, Robert Albright. Appreciate you being here, Robert. Thanks, Tracy. For today's discussion, we'll be going over the topic of sustainability and sustaining momentum over the long term when doing collaborative work. For many collective impact initiatives, there can be a far horizon to see actual long-term population-level results. And that's often one of the big mental model shifts when doing this form of collaborative work, that to reach those population level goals, one often has to think long-term, like five or 10 years for a project or even longer. Change can take a long time. And because of that, an added challenge is just keeping people motivated or keeping partners at the table or figuring out how to fund a long-term initiative when funding cycles for say, grant-making organizations may run on a yearly basis and may not stay involved after a year or two. So what do you do? If these big social change goals take such a long time to become reality, how do we get there? And that's what we're talking about today. So before we kick things off, Jen, Robert, is there anything you want to add to this uh, definition and discussion of sustainability that we're discussing today? I think that's a great framing, Tracy. This is such long-term work that uh, sustainability is important, especially, uh, and as part of that adaptability, you know, as we find ourselves facing so many intersecting crises here in the U.S. and abroad. Um, when we think about sustainability, we not we probably ought to think not only about sustaining what we set out to do in the first place, but adapting the work to meet the moment as we go and ensuring it remains relevant. So I think that's also a frame that Robert and I will bring into this conversation. So maybe we'll kick things off with, um, when we're talking about leadership and sustainability, what, what does that mean to you? 
Uh, one thing I'll just say up front is um, a lot of this content will be building off of a framework that our colleagues at the Tamarack Institute have put forward and done some great trainings on, and we've adapted it a bit. Um, and they talk about seven different elements of sustainability. And so I think we will walk through them one at a time, but just to give some visibility to where we're going, we'll talk about leadership, uh, collaboration and co-creation, understanding the community, demonstrating results, community responsivity, uh, involving and integrating staff broadly into the effort, and of course, uh, the 100-pound uh, gorilla in the room funding. And so we'll take them one at a time, but uh, first of all, shout out and thanks to folks at the Tamarack Institute for some really helpful framing about holistically thinking about sustainability. I guess the first one to dive into is leadership. And uh, I will say, I think that those seven factors are relevant for sustaining uh, programs and nonprofit work in general. And when we talk about leadership, we wanna think about, uh, in this case, leadership of collaborative work and shared leadership and systems leadership. And so what do we mean? Uh, first, I think we it's really important for sustaining the work to think about having shared leadership. This work requires the engagement of a really broad set of folks in the community and can't look, we can't look towards one leader, one influential leader, one person on the backbone, one funder to be the leader of this work if it's going to be carried forward over the long term. And so bringing a lens towards shared leadership from day one, I think is uh, really important on day one and in order to sustain the work. And I think that that leadership needs to think about co-creating a common vision and objective. So a broad set of folks are engaged in that process and sharing that leadership. Leadership collectively needs to think about ongoing adaptation and planning and evaluating, and we'll get into some of those as we um, go through this conversation. Uh, leadership also needs to collectively think about all of the items we're talking about around funding and how to sustain funding. Again, that's not just one leader, but the collective. And how to build leadership and leadership capacity of others in the network. This is, you know, really, uh, as we've, as I've now said many times, shared leadership, and that has to be shared. And in some cases, um, ca leadership capacity building can be really useful to to spread that leadership role across people engaged in the steering committee, in working groups of the collaborative, and in key partner organizations. So we really want to think holistically about leadership as a key element in sustainability. Well, it sounds like I think I think leadership had been number one on that. I think on that Tamarack Institute frame that we're talking about today. Uh, and number two had been demonstrating results. Am I getting that right? Yes. And I'm happy to jump in on that one, Tracy. And you know, I think when, when I reflect on collaboratives that I've supported and talked to colleagues and peers and other partners, uh, one way that a collaborative's momentum can stall is if they actually aren't seeing concrete changes and concrete results. So obviously the flip of that is that if you can demonstrate change and demonstrate progress, that's that's one strong way to maintain momentum and keep existing partners coming back to meetings and potentially draw in other partners. And one of the questions I get from folks about that is if you're earlier in your collective impact journey, how can you demonstrate results if you're working on this really long-term 
intractable problems. So one way to think about demonstrating results is to think about different types of results that you could demonstrate. There are things that you could point to that are more short-term wins, maybe more process changes, like that you've established agreement among partners around a common goal and a common strategy among partners, and that you've put some infrastructure in place to make sure that your collaborative is successful. That is not yet getting to maybe what you're ultimately trying to, to change in your community, whether it's around literacy or childhood obesity rates or some environmental outcome. But there's clearly process changes that really are laying the foundation for uh, other changes that will come. So I think we've seen collaborators that are early on demonstrate results by just pointing to here's some changes that have happened in the first year or so of our work that we think are going to lead to longer term changes. You could also think about more intermediate changes or changes that might take more than a year or so to come together. So things like we've talked about this before on other conversations. So what are some changes in the system that we have influenced? So have we actually changed the practices and behaviors of partners around the table? Have we influenced policy? Have we deepened relationships and trust among partners? And then of course, there's results that you would hope to demonstrate over time at that long-term population level. Um, and so I think, you know, if you can parse that out, one helpful resource is the Guide to Evaluating Collective Impact, which provides some sample um, outcomes and indicators against those three levels. But that's one way that I would encourage collaborators to think about those different categories of change that can help keep people engaged. One thing I would just add to that, in addition to what Robert said, is that even in the early days, we often see efforts find some what we would call like quick wins or pilots that they can take on to build momentum early. So definitely important to measure the uh, kind of, or definitely important for momentum to be able to name some of the more process-oriented accomplishments. But if there's an opportunity to also elevate uh, some quick wins, they might be smaller programs or pilots, not the systems change level type impact, but it is those quick wins that kept people like rolling up their sleeves together and excited to stay at the table in the short to medium term. Oh, so it sounds like it's, it's really helpful to kind of, when you're leading these efforts to take on kind of whole contain at the same time, multiple metric tracks. So what are coming together around what are the, how can we track the short-term wins in order to keep people in moment, uh, keep, keep momentum up? And then also what are the indicators for the longer term wins so we can see how we're doing year after year. So kind of building in both multiple tracks uh, at the same time. The next one that you had discussed had been staff involvement in integration. What, what does that mean? Yes, in the context of doing collective impact work, the idea here is that it can be helpful to have multiple people at different um, roles and uh, I'm using air quotes levels of an organization involved in the collaborative and many collective impact type collaboratives have different kinds of tables where people come together so you may have a steering committee or a, a leadership oriented table and you may have folks that are um, more senior and um, stature in an organization plugging in there and then we also have working groups or action teams where folks that are closer to doing the relevant work are rolling up their sleeves and getting engaged. And you might have 
other types of advisory groups like data advisory groups or uh, policy advisory groups. And the idea here is that uh, for organizations that are really committed to the goals of the collective, it can be helpful to have multiple different folks from partner organizations engage at those different tables. And the reason this is helpful for sustainability is a couple of reasons. First of all, um, when leadership transitions happen, uh, within a partner organization, if you have commitment to the collaborative throughout the organization, that certainly helps it um, be more durable in its role when a certain individual or leader transitions to a different job, which is really natural and happens all the time. And so having more staff involved and integrated is helpful in that way. It's also helpful for sustainability because in my mind, part of what sustaining collective impact work means is that partners in the collaborative are changing the work of their own organization to align with the priorities of the collaborative, the priorities that have been set by partners in the community. And so you're going to see greater change in partner organizations if more than one person is involved in the collaborative because the understanding really cuts across the whole organization as to why those changes are important in service of the community's vision and goals. And so if you have folks uh, plugging into different parts of the collaborative, the organization, the, the partner organization will be able to more holistically adapt its work to be aligned with the common agenda. And so even if there is some slowing of momentum of the work of the whole collaborative, the change itself will be sustained by the work that part partner organizations take on. So just to make that more specific, if you have, let's say, an education collaborative and one of the key strategies is around literacy and you have a work group that's focused on the role of out-of-school time partners and supporting literacy, you may have a key partner organization where um, a, a vice president of programs sits on a steering committee and a program leader sits on a work group and that program or program director or manager. And that program director or manager is the one that actually is likely to be closest to implementing uh, what they learn from participating in the collaborative or changing practices based on what is prioritized by the collaborative. And even if that working group uh, stalls or uh, disintegrates over time, those changes that the collaborative priority prioritized would be sustained because the person engaged in the work group um, can sustain the, the changes inside that nonprofit partner organization. So hopefully that example helps a little bit, but that's the idea behind the reason for staff involvement and integration in a cross-sector collaborative type work. That makes a lot of sense and also reinforces uh, what you were earlier talking about, about shared leadership and how important that is too. I think another one that you had mentioned earlier around these, these seven key points around sustainability was effective collaboration and co-creation. Could you, could I hear a little bit more about what that means? Sure. And I think folks will begin to hear that a lot of these are interconnected and they don't necessarily stand on their own. I think this one in particular does build on some of what Jen was just speaking about with shared leadership, with the importance of having clear roles and responsibilities at that steering committee, working group, or other levels. But this is really about having uh, clearly identified partners who are helping co-create 
the initiative that might be co-creating what you're trying to achieve. It might also be if you're several years into the work, it might be co-creating within a specific work group. What are the strategies and activities that you're going to work on? But you really want to have this not be something that just one or two people are saying, this is what we're going to do. And then, you know, you share that out with the community. We're talking about a messier process, but one that's going to build much deeper levels of buy-in if you're thoughtful about how to co-create the initiative. So we'll, we'll spend some more time in a, another podcast talking specifically about the different kind of governance and structural elements of collective impact. But I think this is where it really does get into clearly defining what the backbone is doing, clearly defining what a steering committee body is going to do in terms of guiding vision and strategy and um, championing the initiative. And then be really clear about what the the working groups are going to do around implementation. So um, if you can clarify those roles and responsibilities, it creates a lot of different avenues or opportunities for leadership within a collaborative. And, and that can really help with co-creation and, and effective collaboration. Another one that we that talked about was, and this seems pretty straightforward, understanding communities. Uh, can What does that mean for when you're really thinking about sustainability and for an initiative? Sure. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure it's, it's totally straightforward. Uh, But the idea here, um, I mean, this is very core to the collective impact approach is putting community members and residents and individuals with lived experience at the center of the work. And this goes everything from partnering with community to help identify the focus of the initiative right up front, understanding the, the quote problem that the collaborative is looking to solve to engaging with community and uh, including and engaging and elevating community in the governance structures uh, of and implementation structures of the collaborative to partnering with members of community to implement the, the strategies that are prioritized by, by the collaborative and in order to do this, there are lots of different considerations around ensuring that you try to have as great of representation of community as possible. Um, this We really look um, align with equity values here of disaggregating data to understand which communities are experiencing the, the worst results on the topic and being able to target some of the work for those communities and hence including and uh, prioritizing those communities as part of the collaborative. And so we could do a whole podcast in and of itself on community engagement, but the tie here to sustainability is that the work has to be relevant and the right work for community in order for it to be impactful and sustainable over time. And you know, uh, program um, program leaders, folks from the nonprofit sector, funders come and go, right? As we've talked about, there are leadership transitions for folks that are taking on this work as a profession. Uh, people will transition and the community is there to stay. And the community is is the community for the long haul. And so um, centering the community also is key to sustainability because being relevant to the community is, is frankly the reason for sustaining the work over the long term. And community members will be there over the long term as part of the work. And so being incredibly intentional and 
responsible and community engagement is an important dimension of sustainability. And I don't know that it's often talked about as a dimension of sustainability, but um, I appreciate the, you know, in this framework, elevating it as such. That's a great point. It makes me think too, like related to, um, again, it, it connects to, I appreciate the point earlier made about how these are all interconnected. Then it connects to the point about, again, around leadership, around shared leadership and how important it is to have community as community members as a point of shared leadership in the initiative. It also just makes, you know, really makes me think too about how important it is because transitions, leadership transitions is so natural part of the process, how important it is to work for leaders to to work on those transitions too. So in order to, to in order to keep community at the center, oftentimes you have to take a leading role, maybe even in your own transition as you transition out of an organization or an initiative, for instance, how are you setting folks up to be able to sustain the, the, the work? So it's an interesting question to think about. Um, and also for folks to think about too, that these points that we're going over, they're not so much like, they're not checklists so much as like a net, basically you're, you're building a net of, of actions and policies and processes in order to keep the whole thing together uh, for the long term. So another part of the net, I think, was community responsive. I'm just I'm just going to work on this word: community responsivity, or you have to stay relevant. Is another way to think about it. Um, let's. What is what does that mean in this case for sustainability? Yeah, I can take this one. And Jen, I know you've <clears throat> done a lot of thinking and work on this as well. But I think for this, it's really about how can you as a leader in a collective impact initiative, how can you adapt to meet whatever is changing in your community? How can you stay relevant? Essentially, I was thinking about this was probably six years ago, Jen, I think you and John Kenya and Faye Hanley Brown wrote an article about mindset shifts, like things that you need to think differently about in collective impact. And you, you talked about in that article about collective seeing collective learning and collective doing and as it relates to community responsivity that means that as a group you need to be um, watching for trends or changes things that are actually happening in your local context so you need to see those you need to learn from them and then you actually need to react and do things differently to adapt to those changes so obviously in this year um, one of the biggest you know changes has been what COVID-19 has brought on communities. And so that has represented a real challenge for collaboratives, of course, but there's also an opportunity for uh, existing initiatives to remain relevant by um, using that existing infrastructure, that existing trust and relationships that they've put in place to meet the community's needs. So for folks who've not seen it, there's a great case study that uh, Paul Schmitz um, has written recently uh, around what they've done in Milwaukee uh, by working with existing partners to meet communities' needs. I just think of that as one really rich example of how Milwaukee has not just stuck to their existing strategies and goals and objectives from two years ago as COVID was impacting everything from housing to education to every, every dimension of, of uh, the sec social sector in Milwaukee, but they've actually adapted in, in new ways. Um, so I think that that's just a good you know, example, and there's many others we're learning about communities that are really adapting to meet changes at the community level. But again, if you think about the opposite of any of these, if you don't respond to the community's needs and you just stay on this linear path, that's certainly gonna undercut your initiative sustainability because people are gonna say, you know, what's the point of coming together if we're not actually gonna meet 
the community where it is and that might change over time. That's a good point. That's a good frame too, to think about like the opposite of all these things as a way to be not sustainable. So the opposite of shared leadership is solo leadership and kind of hoarding leadership and the opposite of demonstrating results is, 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 is kind of not tracking how we're doing uh, either on the short term or the long term and then thus or hiding or not, not sharing things out. So that's a really interesting way to think about it, even when you're considering your own path towards sustainability. So the next one, I think, I think, Jen, you mentioned earlier was like the elephant in the room, which was strategic funding and finances. I know this is on a lot of people's minds, especially this year with the with COVID-19 and the economic downturn that's happened is just financial sustainability, especially for nonprofit organizations where funding can be so changing year after year. So I'd love to hear more. I'm sure a lot of people would love to hear more about this one. Yes, yes. Uh, this is that there is no magic solution or a proverbial silver bullet here, but I, I, I can start and Robert, please do add in um, with some, some reflections. I was really um, hoping for a silver bullet. I know <laughs> we, Hey, the collective impact forum is a nonprofit too. So we hope for our own silver bullet as well, but uh, we digress. Uh, well, I think that when thinking about funding collective impact work, cross-sector collaboratives, I'll start by talk, thinking about two different buckets of work. I, there's the funding of the collaborative infrastructure. So that is like the backbone, the cost of convening or in the current COVID context, the technology, the data collection work and all of the costs that you may think of as I hate to say it, like the additive cost of the collective piece. And then there is also just funding the work that uh, the partners are doing as part of the collaborative. And when I'll, I'll start by actually talking about funding the work. So sometimes collect, collective impact, um, you know, the strategies that the steering committee and working groups identify don't always require additional funds. So I do want to debunk that myth. Um, sometimes it is about making better and more aligned decisions or strategic choices with the resources that we already do have in hand or shifting from one area of focus to another based on the collective seeing and learning and doing that Robert was just mentioning. So there is always work that um, does happen that doesn't require additional funding, but there often it is work that could also require additional funding. And so that is the work that uh, I'll just touch on for for a moment. And I think funding that work, to fund that work, a couple of things come to mind and sustaining that kind of funding. I think first, it can be helpful to engage funders, engage philanthropy in the co-design process. And it's, it's a tricky role for funders to play because we are not asking funders to set the agenda for the collaborative, but to bring their perspective. And as with really most state, as with all stakeholders, folks often will feel more invested emotionally in the work uh, and mission-wise in the work if they are part of the creation process. And so having funders in, in some way engaged in the work can, can be a helpful element of sustaining the work. Um, another dimension here goes back also to what Robert was mentioning around evaluation. Certainly to sustain funding over time, it can be helpful to be able to demonstrate some degree of results. Uh, and I won't um, repeat what Robert said, but depending on where 
the initiative is in its evolution, you would likely be looking at different um, evaluation questions and kind of data and stories that you were sharing with funders. But having some way to demonstrate the work is really helpful, obviously, in raising funds. Another strategy I think that can be helpful in supporting the work itself is looking at joint fundraising opportunities amongst partners. And so that can be coming together to apply for grant opportunities from philanthropy or, um, or um, you know, state or federal grant programs also. Sometimes the backbone can help herd the cats, if you will, on those kinds of applications. But thinking about your partners um, in joint fundraising efforts is some is a, a place where the collaboration can add some unique value. And um, many funders are really attracted to those joint applications because it means so much of the hard work around um, aligning programming and coordination has been done upfront to understand how the grant will be used. And so that is another um, strategy that we see folks using. I think another thing that we, uh, that I often share with folks, and I'll I'll borrow this from our Collective Impact uh, Forum colleague, Paul Schmitz, is whether you're talking about funding the programmatic work or the backbone, you're talking about collective impact. And The balance between which you talk about the collective and how much you talk about the impact is sort of, it's an art. Like how much are we talking about the collective? So the process, the relationships, the convening, that's what I mean when I say talking about the collective. And how much are you talking about the impact, the results that you are striving to achieve and the impact that you're looking to have and the, the, you know, the gaps that you're looking to close through your work. And different funders, um, I would say, I, I would say I haven't met a funder that doesn't care about impact. That is <laughs> always, I think, really important to emphasize. But often I think, uh, and I am guilty of this myself, those of us that are really deeply engaged in collective impact work, collective impact nerds, if you will, um, we talk too much about the collective. We talk too much about the process and the and. Um, the meetings and how the pro- the process is unfolding, and we sometimes don't pay enough attention to talking about the impact, which, of course, if you take a step back, is why we're all coming together. And so just a tip in communications, frankly, with the community, with everyone, and certainly with funders, is not forgetting to emphasize the impact enough. And when, in, when important, sure, talk about the collective. And the collective is very important in doing the work, but when it comes to fundraising, the impact is going to be what attracts people to, to supporting the work. I, I'm, I'm talking a lot here. I'll, I'll just, <laughs> let me pause here before I talk about funding the backbone itself. Robert, did you want to, anything you want to add? I would add just to build on what you were saying about funders. Some funders have different appetites for for supporting process and some are much more interested in supporting the programmatic work of the partners. I think some of that requires some due diligence and some homework on the part of who's making the ask to really understand the track record or history of a particular funder, because it, you're probably going to be wasting your time if you put together a, you know, really detailed ask for a funder to support backbone infrastructure. If they really have signaled, and what they've said and what they've supported in the past, that they're much more interested in supporting maybe the work of a specific work group and the partners that are around that table. And then there are other funders, like you said, Jen, that 
really get the importance of the process and the infrastructure and would gladly, if it was, you know, structured in the right, right way, would gl gladly support backbone infrastructure or support the shared med the cost of shared measurement or the cost of convening or the cost of a technical assistance provider to help do the training. Like there's a whole set of things that um, are kind of inputs into the, the those uh, longer term uh, changes that, that, like you said, all funders want to see. Yeah. And one thing that listening to you triggered for me, Robert, was um, one of the, the um, I guess I will call it a trend in philanthropy, but I, I don't mean that in a bad way. One of the interest areas of philanthropy is around systems change. And collective impact is a is one mechanism, one strategy for it when when done successfully for achieving systems change. And we, we've talked about that many times on this podcast. And being able to make the connection between how your work is geared towards moving systems change forward is another way to position the work um, that may that may resonate with folks in philanthropy. So Jen, it sounds like you were going to talk about specifically funding the backbone next. Uh, one thing I just wanted to build off of what you both have shared too is something that I know Vule at the Nonprofit AF blog has talked a lot about, which is how important unrestricted funding is. And this is especially important for sustainability too, because up, when we just focus on funding, say a specific program, we aren't, sometimes aren't able to contribute to sustainability when we don't help fund things like rent and like staff salaries and like capacity building and, and things like that. So that's just another call and encouragement for folks to, especially for funders listening to continually consider how to include unrestricted funding in your grants and how, and how really important that is for sustainability. Uh, but Jen, you wanted to, I think you were going next to funding the backbone, a very big question. Yes, and definitely with you right there on unrestricted funding. So funding the backbone, you know, again, this is this can be tricky because uh, unfortunately, I think the backbone can be perceived as overhead or um, infrastructure. Um, and I think the key is to help funders see the essential role that the backbone plays in 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 collaboratively achieving impact. And one um, one. It's a bit jargony, but one argument you can use is the backbone is a leveraged investment. You know, a little bit of investment in the backbone helps improve the effectiveness of millions to billions of dollars in the system. And so you may be asking for uh, a few hundred thousand dollars to support the backbone. And that is ideally going to improve the impact and effectiveness of all of the partners in the collaborative. So it was very highly leveraged. Another set of messages that are important um, or can be useful, I should say, is, you know, you are helping others. And this, I guess, is going a little deeper on that leverage uh, analogy. You are helping all of the partners be more effective in their work. You are helping an entire system improve its effectiveness. The backbone is really helping move a community towards population level change. You're not working one program at a time. It's not about serving a few dozen or a few hundred individuals. It's about changing the system to benefit thousands of people across the community. And so it is um, a small investment to improve the work of a really 
a really broad set of partners over time. Um, I think some of the other messages around talking about the impact around focusing and, and focusing messages that um, resonate with the homework you've done on the funder, certainly approaching funders where the interest area aligns um, impact wise with the work you're seeking. So education funders are going to be more likely to fund an education backbone. I think that that's probably pretty intuitive, but just worth stating explicitly. The other thing that I know some backbones have uh, done when they've gotten a little bit creative about trying to raise funding is thinking about the different roles that the backbone plays in seeking funders that are particularly excited about that role. So for example, the backbone often helps with bringing data and helping build partners' capacity to be more effective in their own data work. And there are some funders that are very excited about um, more effective use of data in the nonprofit sector. So you may, they may not be attracted to the role of, a, of the backbone as convener or facilitator, but they might be very attracted to, you know, we're going to really strengthen the data capacity of nonprofits doing work in our sector. And so there might be a piece of the backbone that appeals to uh, some funders. So that could be data work, that could be policy or advocacy work, that could be community engagement organizing type work. I think those are some of the specific functions that you could find funders to get behind that might feel more specific than asking for, uh, you know, making your asks around convening, facilitating, guiding, shepherding process, which is so important, but harder to, perhaps harder to pitch to investors. Uh, great. So it sounds like we've gone over the, the different pieces of this sustainability net from leadership to demonstrating results, staff involvement and integration, effective collaboration and co-creation, understanding communities, and community responsivity and to the point you were just talking about a strategic fundraising and financing. Um, that's a lot. It's a lot to think about. Is there any recommendations you have for folks who are kind of, kind of, kind of, it's challenging. It's challenging work. What do you, what do you recommend for folks who are seeing the long road ahead and, and just feeling a little tired? I mean, the first thing that comes to mind for me, Tracy, is I'm reflecting on Paul Schmitz, our colleague, who at the early stages of the pandemic put together a list of things to to keep in mind, uh, one of which was around kind of giving people grace and acknowledging that you're not going to hit all your milestones or maybe even any of your milestones in this season. So I think sometimes you can review these sustainability concepts as theory, but not apply them to practice and the realities of the of the challenges we're facing right now where people are juggling so much with childcare or might've lost a loved one from COVID or so. I think it's just being realistic about what people are carrying and holding. And of course you want to keep your eye on sustainability and you want to continue to move the work forward. Uh, but it does feel like now more than ever, it's really important to lead with grace and give people the kind of margin and space that they need, um, which means that you're probably going to be moving at a timeline or a pace that's different than what you were hoping. Um, so that's just one thing that in this now multiple months into the pandemic, it feels like it's important to emphasize. Yeah, that's great, Robert. The other, the thing that I was thinking about is thinking about 
sustainability and just, you know, the work in general as an organic system. And what I mean by that is that everything, things will ebb and flow. And it's not about trying to sustain everything you're doing right now forever, or that you have it all figured out. There's a tool called the EcoCycle tool that I often um, think about, and it, it talks about how some things fall into different phases. Some of our work is in a maturity phase and we're sort of on autopilot, but sometimes that has, things have to come out of that maturity phase and go through a creative destruction process. And especially in this time of the pandemic, I think we should feel okay if there are things that need to go into creative destruction because they are not as relevant right now. But when things are in creative destruction, that gives you space to think about what might be more important or more relevant right now and find new energy in some new things. And so I think I would encourage folks not to think about your work as fixed and having feeling overwhelmed by sustaining everything the way it is now forever, but rather to think about you know, how can we move things through an eco cycle to keep us that, and that can help keep us energized and keep our momentum up over time. Those are both great points. And to circle back to, to the point around shared leadership uh, is one of the, the parts of the, the, one of the concepts for sustainability is how, how helpful it is to sustain our own energy when we know we are not carrying it alone and we're sharing it with others. Jen, Robert, this was a really helpful discussion just to start thinking about sustaining a long-term project over 5, 10, 15 years. Um, I know this can sound scary when we talk about it, but I know social change and all this stuff, all these big goals that we got can take a long time. So it was really helpful to talk about some of the things just to, to keep us on track as we go towards that long goal. Thank you so much for being part of this discussion. I really appreciate you both. Thanks, Tracy. Thank you both. And this closes out this episode of the Collective Impact Forum podcast. If you are interested in learning more about what was discussed, we've included information and a lot of links in the footnotes for this episode. The intro music for this episode was composed by Raphael Crooks, and our outro music is composed by Kevin McLeod. For those who read our newsletter, you already know that our colleague Robert, who you heard in today's episode, recently transitioned to a new role as Director of Programs at Praxis. We're really proud of Robert and really appreciate having him on the forum team these past seven years. And for listeners, we have one more upcoming episode with him to look forward to. And who knows, maybe we can coax him back to share what he's learning at Praxis. And speaking of learning, registration is now open for our virtual Collective Impact Action Summit that will be held on April 27th through 29th, 2021. The Action Summit is our biggest learning event of the year with over 25 virtual sessions focusing on topics like narrative change, power dynamics, data, and community engagement. And one big plus for being virtual is that we're recording all the sessions and sharing those recordings with attendees after. So you won't have to worry about missing a session. You'll have access to them all. And we're very excited to share about some of our keynotes for this year. For our opening and closing keynotes, we are honored to hear from Reverend Dr. William J. Barber of Repairs of the Breach and Sonia Renee Taylor, who is a poet, an activist, and author of the work The Body is Not an Apology. We hope you can join us. Visit the event section of collectiveimpactforum.org to learn more about this year's Collective Impact Action Summit. This is Tracy Timmons-Gray, Associate Director here at the Collective Impact Forum and your podcast host. 
I want to say thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to connecting with you more in our next episode. Until next time, we hope you are safe and well.